Good evening and welcome. I'm Amna Nawaz. And I'm Jeff Bennett. On the News Hour tonight, the Supreme Court hears a challenge to President Biden's student loan relief plan with major implications for borrowers nationwide. Food banks prepare for a spike in demand as SNAP benefits implemented during the pandemic come to an end for many Americans. And nearly a year after their town was liberated, residents of Bucha, Ukraine, reflect on the horrors and potential war crimes their family suffered at the hands of Russian forces. No one has the right to kill unarmed people in an independent country. It's hard to accept the martyr's death that they were subjected to. Welcome to the News Hour. The fate of some 40 million Americans promised student debt relief is now in the hands of the Supreme Court. The justices heard arguments today in high stakes cases over the legality of President Biden's student loan forgiveness plan. Students, teachers, and activists gathered outside the court, highlighting their struggles and demanding debt relief. In order to become those the next generation of healthcare workers, the next generation of working in corporate America, basically being in your law enforcement, in order to do that, we must go to school. So how can we go give back to our community if we don't have the resources? I have upwards of $80,000 of student debt. Some of that is public, some of that is private. And I think that student debt cancellation would be a benefit for many, many people, millions. The issue has been embroiled in the courts since the president announced his debt relief plan in August of last year. John Yang has more on the day's arguments. The court heard two challenges to the president's plan, one from six Republican-led states and another from two student loan borrowers, one who doesn't qualify for relief because her loans are held by a private lenders and one who doesn't qualify for the program's maximum benefit. To discuss the arguments, NewsHour Supreme Court analyst Marsha Coyle, and to talk about what's at stake, Danielle Douglas-Gabriel, a Washington Post national education reporter. Marsha, there seemed to be a lot of skepticism today uh, about this uh, Biden plan. Right, John, the skepticism seemed to be among primarily the court's conservative wing. And, and it's always hard to predict, but um, my sense after the questioning was that there may be five conservative justices who, uh, looking at the merits of the case, uh, w would not uphold the student loan forgiveness program. Uh, but standing in their way of getting to the merits of that program is a big hurdle, uh, and that's called standing. Uh, Justice Barrett, along with the court's liberal wing, was very focused on standing, which we've talked about before. It's the legal right to actually sue, and here the challengers have to show that they have a specialized injury, a concrete injury that uh, is traceable to the conduct of the education department policy here, and that the court can remedy it. It's a huge huge hurdle, and, and my sense after the arguments was also that the lawyers for the challengers were not making uh, a really as, as strong an argument as the government made to oppose standing. If the court doesn't find standing, the case goes away uh, and the program stands. But if they do, they can go on to the merits. And I also know that if you have five justices who really want to get to the merits, they may very likely find standing some way. One reason that the conservative justices were so, so skeptical about the uh, constitutionality of the Biden plan is that they say there is no specific legislation authorizing it. Uh, here is uh, Chief Justice John Roberts 
questioning the Biden administration's attorney. The case reminds me of the one we had a few years ago under a different administration where the administration tried acting on its own to cancel the Dreamers program. Uh, and we blocked that effort. And I just wonder, given the posture of the case and given our historic concern about uh, separation of powers, you would recognize at least that this is a case that presents extraordinarily serious, important issues about the role of Congress and about the role that we should exercise in scrutinizing that. Marsha, this idea that Congress should be the one to decide big issues, that's sort of a theme for this conservative majority, isn't it? It is, and a recent one. It has to do with something called the Major Questions Doctrine. The court said in June, in, in a case involving the Clean Air Act and EPA, that if an agency uh, issues a policy that has uh, serious major um, uh, political and economic consequences, then the express authorization of Congress is required. And that's the primary argument of the challengers in this case, that uh, this is a major questions doctrine case, and the court should apply that to require Congress to expressly authorize what the Department of Education did here. The liberal justices take a different view of this yes, question definitely. of who should decide. This is... Uh, uh, Justice Sonia Sotomayor questioning the Nebraska Solicitor General. There's a 50 million students who are, uh, will benefit from this, who today will struggle. Many of them don't have assets sufficient to bail them out after the pandemic. And what you're saying is now we're going to give judges the right to decide how much aid to give them instead of the person with the expertise and the experience, the Secretary of Education, who's been dealing with educational issues and the problems surrounding student loans. The three liberal justices, Sotomayor, Kagan and Jackson, uh, seem very sympathetic to the Biden administrator argument that this was authorized by Congress. Absolutely. Uh, Justice Kagan said that the act that the d department uh, used to uh, promulgate this program uh, is very clear. In fact, she said it's, it couldn't be any clearer that Congress gave the secretary the authority to waive or modify uh, student loan requirements. And she said that the court often gets uh, statutes that aren't very clear, but this one, she said, is Congress has made clear its intent here. Well, there was a lot of discussion about those two words, waive and modify. That's right. That's that's another issue in the case. Uh, Justice Thomas was saying, well, you know, waive and modifi modify. How does that amount to cancellation, as can happen in some of the student loan uh, that have ha that are being looked at here, uh, and. Uh, the government argues that it's waive and modify the the requirements around student loans, and the secretary did both here. And then once he waived and modified them, he create he he imposed new ones that the ones that are being challenged today. And the conservative justices also talked about fairness. Yes, that's that was a, a very interesting exchange. Uh, some of the justices, the Chief Justice, Justice Alito, Justice Kavanaugh, they, they spoke about how, well, you know, uh, I think it was the Chief Justice gave the best sort of hypothetical. He talked about two students who graduate from high school. One takes out a loan to go to college, another takes out a loan to create a lawn service. Why should 
uh, the student who goes to college and will probably make more than the lawn service student in a lifetime. Why, why should that student have a debt forgiven but not the lawn service? And the government said, you know, very clearly that, that this act involves student loans. It doesn't involve other types of loans. And there are other types of aid available to the, the, the lawn service uh, student who uh, has that loan. Uh, so there is that concern, and they were asking whether they should factor into their analysis the, the idea of fairness here. Uh, Danielle Douglas-Gabriel, if this program were to go away, what kind of student would, uh, or student loan borrower would be uh, most heavily affected? Well, because uh, student loan debt is disproportionately shouldered by black borrowers and borrowers of color, uh, they would be the ones who would most likely be impacted. I think it's really telling that the administration chose to add a, essentially a Pell Grant bonus, uh, allowing for borrowers who had federal Pell Grants for low-income students to receive an additional $10,000. And many people would qualify for that because many of those who are have gone to college in the last few decades have fewer resources than in generations past. Without this program, when will the crunch come for these borrowers? Well, uh, the Department of Education has said that payments uh, will start to resume 60 days after a decision is made, and is certainly no later than June of this year. Now, keep in mind that borrowers have not made payments. Uh, most borrowers, federal student loan borrowers, have not made payments on their loans for nearly three years at this stage. And there is a lot of concern, in part, and this is the reason why the administration says this policy is needed, that many of those borrowers will struggle to make payments on their loans. They will become delinquent or potentially default on their loans. Uh, in January, the administration unveiled a, a new income-based uh, student repayment plan. How does that work? Well, this plan pretty much updates an existing student loan repayment plan uh, by assuring that borrowers pay less of their discretionary income for a shorter amount of time before getting their student loans forgiven. So, for example, a undergraduate borrower who has taken out $12,000 or less in undergraduate debt could pay 5% of their discretionary income for 10 years before the balance of their loans are forgiven. What are the options for the administration if this, this uh, plan gets struck down? So the administration could try to make this happen through an authority uh, under the Higher Education Act. Now, that would require negotiated rulemaking, which is a pretty lengthy process. And I think that came up today during the arguments. And one of the reasons why it really wasn't the most salient uh, route for the administration is because it really undermines the idea that this is for an emergency, for a national emergency, and this is to prevent any kind of fallout from that national emergency. The HEA doesn't exactly lend itself to that argument, whereas at least in the administration's views, the HEROES Act does. Uh, is the Education Department, is the administration already thinking about these things? Well, they're not telling me. I've <laughs> been asking a whole lot the last few days, and they keep saying that um, they're very confident that the HEROES Act gives them the authority that is needed to make sure that this uh, program will go forward, and they are confident that the uh, Supreme Court will agree. Uh, certainly after today's arguments. Lots of folks who are watching this don't necessarily take that optimistic a view. But at this moment, there isn't a concrete plan that's being publicly discussed about what will happen next if the plan is struck down by the court. 
Danielle Douglas Gabriel of the Washington Post, Marsha Coyle, NewsHour Supreme Court analyst. Thank you both very much. Pleasure, John. Thank you. In the day's other news, nonstop winter storms dump snow and ice from coast to coast. A new blizzard struck parts of Nevada overnight with snow piling up around Lake Tahoe. The storm also brought more snow to parts of Southern California. In the Northeast, snowfall quickly melted into slush around New York, but schools closed in parts of New England. Elsewhere, thousands of people in Michigan spent a sixth day with no power after last week's ice storm. In Ukraine, a top government commander now says the situation around a key eastern town is extremely tense after months of brutal combat. Russian forces are trying to encircle Bakhmut and cut off its supply routes, but at a heavy cost. New footage today showed smoke billowing from buildings inside the battered city. The last of its residents navigated barren streets. Meantime, Russian President Vladimir Putin ordered beefed-up border security after a Ukrainian-made drone got within 60 miles of Moscow today. Ukraine has received well over $100 billion in U.S. aid since the war started, and senior Pentagon officials say it's being well spent. Colin Call, an undersecretary of defense, made that case at a congressional hearing today as Republican Congressman Joe Wilson and others pushed for stronger oversight. There have been billions in U.S. weaponry and financial aid flowing to Ukraine and more coming to stop a war criminal Putin. We're all concerned about accountability, and the American people need to know because somehow this hadn't been recognized. We don't see any evidence of, of diversion uh, in, in our reporting. We think the Ukrainians are using properly what they've been given. U.S. officials have pressed Ukraine's government to police corruption in its ranks, and some top officials in Kyiv have been forced out. China today denounced a U.S. government ban on the popular video-sharing app TikTok. The White House has now given federal agencies 30 days to remove the Chinese-owned app from all government-issued devices, citing security concerns. But in Beijing, a spokeswoman for the foreign ministry blasted the move. As the world's top superpower, how unsure of itself can the U.S. be to fear a young people's favorite app to such a degree? The U.S. has been overstretching the concept of national security and abusing state power to suppress other countries' companies. We firmly oppose those wrong actions. More than two-thirds of American teens use TikTok. China has also rejected an assessment by the U.S. Energy Department that COVID-19 likely came from a lab leak in Wuhan. Beijing insisted today that it's been, quote, open and transparent and believes the virus was spread from animals to humans. Meantime, California formally ended its COVID emergency today. Just five states still have emergency declarations. Delaware, Illinois, New Mexico, Rhode Island, and Texas. President Biden today announced he'll nominate Julie Su for labor secretary. She currently serves as deputy secretary. If confirmed by the Senate, she'd be the administration's first Asian-American cabinet member. Su would replace Marty Walsh, who's leaving to run the National Hockey League's Player Association. And on Wall Street, stocks finished out a February marked by concerns that inflation is untamed and interest rates are headed higher. The Dow Jones Industrial Average lost 232 points today to close at 32,656. The Nasdaq fell 11 points. The S&P 500 slipped 12. For the month, the Dow lost 4 percent, the Nasdaq fell 1 percent, and the S&P was down 2.6 percent. 
Still to come on the news hour, Ukrainians whose town was occupied by Russian forces reflect on what they lost. A former January 6th investigator discusses how releasing footage to Fox could pose a new, new threat. And slices of life immortalized in historic Charlottesville portraits. This is the PBS NewsHour from WETA Studios in Washington and in the West from the Walter Cronkite School of Journalism at Arizona State University. In the last three years, households eligible for food assistance received at least $95 more per month as part of a pandemic-era increase that was designed to combat hunger. But tomorrow, those benefits will expire nationwide, meaning a smaller monthly food budget for nearly 30 million Americans. William Brangham spent yesterday at a food bank in rural Virginia that's gearing up to meet the increased need this cut will likely trigger. It's another busy week at the Fauquier Community Food Bank in Warrenton, Virginia. About 25 families a day come here to stock up on free groceries. You're all set, dear. Tom's going to take you. 39-year-old Tiffany Robinson visits the food bank to help stretch the money she receives through the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, known as SNAP, the very benefits that will soon be cut back. That's really going to affect my budget because I'm going to have to come out of pocket even more than what I do now to get groceries. SNAP, which used to be called food stamps, is the Department of Agriculture program that provides monthly stipends for lower income Americans to spend on groceries. In March 2020, Congress passed temporary SNAP increases to help people weather the pandemic economy. But last December passed another law ending those increases. So tomorrow, Americans in 32 states and other jurisdictions will see those extra SNAP benefits expire. 18 states have already rolled them back. A 2022 Urban Institute study found these emergency allotments kept more than 4 million people above the poverty line in the last quarter of 2021, reducing poverty by nearly 10 percent. The coming reduction in SNAP benefits will be different for different households depending on their circumstances, but on average, a family of three will lose about $200 per month from their benefits. The cuts will reduce payments to about $6 per person per day. Robinson says that's not enough to feed her children, and she'll need to depend on this food bank even more. You know, like, I'm, I'm panicking a little bit. Like, I really was when I got that message. I was like, so what am I going to do next month? It really sent me into a stressful state. I'm worried about my children, like my children eat before I do. I'll probably have to come here more often or try to find other outlets so I can get food for my children. I'll find something else. That's okay. Food pantries like this are pressed on two sides, rising demand for their help, but rising costs constraining how much they can provide. Staples like eggs are up over 70% compared to last year. We've got tomato soup this month. We've got applesauce, mac and cheese. Most of these goods come via donations from local grocery stores or bought with local donations or proceeds from their thrift store next door. Did he get his ham? Sharon Ames is the executive director of the Fauquier Community Food Bank, and we talked yesterday about her community and what these cuts might mean for them. Who is it that you serve? Who are the people that come through your door? It's all walks of life. And I'll go back to the thrift store side. I have people now who used to shop over there, know their money went to buy food here, but now they've had to come to me and say, times have changed. Gas is high, food's high. I need your help. 
we help the homeless. It's it's everybody. We're here talking to you because the, the, the pandemic SNAP benefit extension is about to expire. Yeah. Do you have a sense of what that's going to mean for the people of this county? We are going to feel it. They're going to feel it. They are starting to call now and ask us questions about, you know, if we can expand and they can get more food if need be, and we always answer yes, we will do the very, very best we can. From what I am hearing and what I'm understanding, it can be around 95 to 100 and some dollars a month. But again, that depends on their family, how big their family is, how much they get to what their, their cut will be. And for people who may not appreciate the circumstances of the families that you help, 95 to 100 dollars a month, how significant is that? That's huge. That's $25 a week. That's huge. That's milk. That's bread. That's peanut butter. That's hamburger. It's huge. That's big to them. Is it your sense that most of the families that are going to see a cut in their benefits are going to be okay? They will be okay. They'll manage, they'll survive. They'll probably make an extra phone call to us and say, look, I've got three or four more days in a month to go. I'm out of food, can you give me food? And we will. I believe in my community and I, I believe if we reach out and say we need help, that it will be there. I think the other thing we have to look at is down the road, think about summer when the children are out of school. No free lunches. No free breakfast. There are some people in Congress who argue that the SNAP program, the food stamp program, is too expensive. And this pandemic extension uh, bump up was too much. And then we have to dial those costs down. I mean, as someone who sees the beneficiaries of this program, wh wh what do you think of that argument? We are going to see children who are not going to function in school because they are not fed properly. They go to bed hungry. We are going to see elderly that give up their medicine, diabetic medicine, whatever it may be. The choice between food and medicine is Absolutely. too great. Absolutely. We're going to, it, it is, it is going to affect everybody. And I'm not really sure how Congress is coming up with the fact that it's too much money when you're going to feed people and keep them healthy and make them part of our society. You think that's not the right place to cut? No. And I know the argument is, uh, that's why when I say that we qualify people, a lot of people view a food pantry as you just walk in and say, hey, I want food. It's not like that. We do qualify you. SNAP does too. So it's, it is a program that is, has rules. You're meeting people with demonstrated needs. You see uh, somebody come to you and you give them a can of tuna and they hold it to them and say, oh my God, Sharon, this is four meals. No, it's not. It's one. You know, that will make you stop and think. And at our level, we see that. We hear that. Congress don't. All right, Sharon Ames, thank you so much for talking with us. Thank you very much. Some of the first and starkest images of Russian brutality in Ukraine emerged from the Kyiv suburb of Bucha last year. 1,700 Ukrainians were killed there, according to Ukrainian officials, 
who also say 9,000 war crimes were committed in that city. Now, one year later, and with the support of the Pulitzer Center, special correspondent Simon Ostrovsky and videographer Yegor Troyanovsky returned to Bucha to reveal the story of the final hours of one group of Ukrainians executed in cold blood. A warning, many of the images in the story are disturbing. They call it the first draft of history. Reporters arrive on the scene to witness events while they're still fresh. A year ago, our NewsHour crew found this kill site located behind an office building that had been used by Russian forces as a headquarters during their month-long occupation of Bucha. What we've seen here is eight bodies, some of them with their hands tied behind their backs. This could be evidence of war crimes. Our images were among some of the early footage that poured out of Bucha and opened the world's eyes to the brutality of Russia's faltering war machine. The Russian leadership claimed the pictures were staged as part of a crude attempt to tarnish Russia's reputation. As for Bucha, listen, I speak with my colleagues. They have relevant intercepts about the transport that was used to get to this town and create the conditions for this organization of this provocation, this fake. On the ground, evidence pointed to executions. Many of the victims had their hands tied behind their backs, a good indication that a war crime had been perpetrated. The victims appeared to have been killed with gunshots to the head and chest. But who were they and who killed them? We could only speculate that retreating Russian forces were to blame because of the litter they left behind, clearly marked as being from Russia. Several subsequent investigations conducted by PBS Frontline, The New York Times and the BBC, piecing together CCTV footage of the last moments of these men's lives, have since established the facts and paint a grim picture of Bucha under Russian occupation. When Russian forces first arrived in Bucha in late February, they didn't expect to stay long. This was supposed to be just another town on the way to the capital, Kiev. Instead, their armored columns were incinerated from the sky. Russians. Come to us with a sword, die by the sword. The surviving Russians pulled back and regrouped, re-entering Bucha on March 3rd and 4th, as confirmed by surveillance footage captured from Yuri Naumenko's auto shop. There's a bullet hole there. They took it down. And that's what's left of one of the cameras. One pointed this way, and the other was set in the opposite direction. Ukraine's top prosecutor, Andriy Kostin, told NewsHour what the Russians did next. On uh, 4th of March 2022, uh, members of the armed forces uh, and other military formations of Russian Federation searched the residential buildings on Yablonivska Street. So they uh, uh, wanted uh, to identify the servicemen of Ukrainian army uh, uh, and territorial uh, defense. As Russian troops poured into Yablonska Street to take over the neighborhood, they went door to door, rounding up civilians and men they suspected to be fighters. The Chmut family had front row seats. So you saw everything happening right out of this window here? Yes. They watched as the ill-fated group of men were lined up in the courtyard. The bastards. The hostages are all there. There they are, sitting under the fence. One, two, three, four, five, six. 
the auto shop cameras had an even better view of the group of nine men being led single file, barefoot, and with their t-shirts pulled over their heads. Eventually, the Russians came for the Chmut family. Tetyana and her sons were made to join a group of women, children, and men who were not under suspicion. Her husband, Sir He, was put in line with the group of men who'd been forced to their knees. Somewhere here, somewhere here, they lined us up, right about here. One man already lay on the ground dead when Sir He arrived. There was one, he was to my right. The only thing I could think about was that my family weren't harmed. Sir He was a hair's breadth away from being lumped in with the suspected Ukrainian fighters, but his wife and children stepped in. We begged and pleaded, said he's a fisherman, not even a hunter. He'd never served, doesn't know how to hold a pistol or a rifle. They said, okay, move him over with the other men. The rest weren't so lucky. According to witness accounts, the remaining men were led away, tortured, interrogated, and then shot. Including this man, Ivan Skiba, who lived to tell the tale. I felt the bullet hit me. My arms were tied behind my back and I just fell. Skiba left Ukraine for Western Europe after he survived his own execution. So I just relaxed my body and froze. I didn't even breathe because it was cold outside and you could see my breath, so that they didn't see that I was still alive. Despite a gunshot wound, Skiba managed to crawl to safety. The rest of the men's bodies would lay by the side of the building for another month until April 3rd, when we filmed them being recovered. Do you think the killings there were an isolated incident and a military unit gone bad? or this is responsibility that goes up the chain of command? When we liberated Kharkiv region, they committed the same types of war crimes. In Kherson region, they committed the same war crimes. And this shows that this is a, not only a pattern of conduct of Russian militaries, but from our point of view, it's uh, uh, evidence of the persecutorial policy of Russians against, uh, uh, against Ukrainians. The eight bodies that the Russians left behind here are just a small fraction of the overall 458 fatalities in Bucha. But the story that they tell is becoming all too familiar in a year of war in which a pattern of alleged war crimes has emerged across the country. Today, the site has been turned into an informal memorial created by the families of the victims. Alexander Turovsky has come here with his granddaughter to commemorate his son, Sviatoslav. He was a worker like everyone. This is his daughter. On her way to kindergarten, she passes the cemetery. She always says, my daddy's there. At the graveyard where the bulk of the people killed in Bucha during the Russian occupation are buried, Natalia Matvichuk lays flowers at her brother Andrei's grave.
He used to bike around this whole area, so he knew it very well. So he passed the intelligence to his commanders. His hands and legs were tied, and there were markings from a rope here. I looked at photographs of his body. His socks were worn through. They were barefoot. No one has the right to kill unarmed people in an independent country. It's hard to accept the martyr's death that they were subjected to. Even if they are captured by the other side, they cannot be intentionally tortured and killed. It's a definite war crime. But the path from the crimes committed in Bucha to any eventual prosecutions is a long and uncertain one. And the pain, it never goes away. For the PBS NewsHour, I'm Simon Ostrovsky in Bucha. A Monday night court filing in the defamation lawsuit brought by Dominion Voting Systems against Fox News revealed a new admission by Rupert Murdoch, the network's owner. Murdoch acknowledged that several Fox hosts knowingly repeated false claims that the 2020 presidential election was stolen. Laura Barone-Lopez has more. The latest revelation from Murdoch's deposition follows another filing in the case that showed some of the some of Fox's biggest stars privately dismissed former President Trump's election fraud lies. Publicly, however, they gave airtime and support to those known falsehoods and brewing conspiracy theories. The findings come as House Speaker Kevin McCarthy has given Fox host Tucker Carlson first access to more than 40,000 hours of the security footage from January 6. Here to discuss is Timothy Hafey, who served as chief investigative counsel to the select House committee on the January 6 attack. Tim, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having in, me, Laura. In Dominion's court filing, they included exchanges from Murdoch's deposition. I just want to run through a little bit of that with you right now. Uh, in it, Dominion attorney asked Murdoch, you are now aware that Fox endorsed at times these false notions of a stolen election. Murdoch, not Fox, no, not Fox, but maybe Lou Dobbs, Mary, maybe Maria Bartiromo as commentators. The attorney then asked him about other hosts, Fox host Janine Pirro, Murdoch, I think so. Fox host Lou Dobbs, oh, a lot. Fox host Sean Hannity, a bit. Finally, the attorney asked, about, this is specifically about their endorsement of a stolen election. Murdoch, yes, they endorsed. You investigated the January 6th attack for months. How did Fox News's coverage and the lies about election fraud in the weeks and months contribute to January 6th? Look, what the Fox News hosts were repeating without foundation was part of a chorus of uh, repeated bogus theories of election fraud. They came from the former president himself. They came in the form of social media posts, repeated. They came in the form of fundraising material sent out by the Trump campaign, which became essentially a stop the steal money machine. Um, so there were lots of different places, Laura, where this false narrative, no foundation in fact, was repeated. And it absolutely had a lot to do with people getting really angry and going to the Capitol, believing genuinely, albeit misguidedly, that the election had been stolen. And now Speaker McCarthy is handing over footage, 
tens of thousands of hours of footage to Fox host Tucker Carlson. What's the impact of that footage being shared? Look, it's dangerous. We got access, the committee got access to that footage under really tight controls. We had a dedicated terminal, only a couple of staff had access to it. It was password protected. And then even after we reviewed footage, if we were gonna use any of it in a, a public hearing, we had to negotiate with the Capitol Police to try to trim how much of it might compromise a camera location or uh, a route of evacuation or any security issue. So we took very seriously the law enforcement sensitivity of that information and took steps to minimize the potential damage of disclosure. I don't know if the, Mr. Carlson or others who might get access to it will abide by those same rules. That's why it's dangerous. If it's just posted, it'll make it easier for people to evade those security protections in the future. There's been a lot of footage already out there, whether through your investigation or other people's personal body cameras. Um, some Capitol Police officers told my colleague Lisa Desjardins that they're not necessarily worried about the security risk uh, or about people finding out camera locations, but what they are worried about is the potential for Fox to cherry pick a narrative out of that footage like this. The DOJ has been allowed to prosecute and jail hundreds of nonviolent political protesters whose crime was having the wrong opinions. He said nonviolent there, but what, what do you say to that from the Capitol Police officers? Look, there, there's no question that you can look at all of that footage and find some people that were there and not engaging in violence. Not everybody was assaulting police officers. Not everyone was breaking windows. That doesn't take away from the fact that this was a riot, that this was a violent attack on the United States Capitol. So it's a bit misleading to take a piece of footage from over here where there are people walking with signs when 50 feet away there were people hitting police officers and breaking windows. Again, it, it is important to look at the entirety of what happened. Not everyone there was bent on violence. There's no question that there were some people there um, who were not violent. The crimes extend beyond violence. The crimes involve breaching a, a barrier and trespassing on the Capitol grounds. And there are a lot of people that have been charged with nonviolent offenses who have been pleading guilty to those crimes, misdemeanors, and not getting jail time. There are degrees of culpability, as there are in, in any mass demonstration event. Looking at the bigger picture, your ultimate report, your committee recommended that Donald Trump, the former president, be charged. Uh, in court, you have to, as you know, show specific actions and convince a jury beyond a reasonable doubt. So what specifically did the former president do that you think he should be charged for? Yeah, so degrees of culpability. He is the main proximate cause of the riot. The committee found evidence of his specific intent to obstruct, interfere, um, or impede the joint session. That's the main statute, is obstruction of an official proceeding. And there's lots of evidence of specific intent that President Trump and his co-conspirators took to ensure that the joint session did not go forward, that the transfer of power did not occur. That started well before January 6th with efforts to use the Justice Department, misuse the Justice Department, pressure state officials, put pressure on the vice president, and then ultimately on January 6th itself, a really incendiary speech to a crowd that he knew was armed and was angry, and then inaction once the riot occurred. Despite repeated encouragement to quell violence, to say something publicly, he did not act. All of that informed the committee's recommendation that there's evidence of the violation of federal crimes, 
by the former president and by others in his immediate circle. And the special counsel investigation could potentially get more evidence than what your committee was able to get. Namely, in, in your investigation, you spoke to senior staff, to former Vice President Mike Pence, and there's a fight going on right now about whether or not the former vice president will testify before a federal grand jury. Privileges aside on the substance, given what you learned in your investigation, do you think that a vice President Mike Pence testimony ha would have vital information about what Trump did in, in his actions, his statements around in the lead up to January 6th? Yes, absolutely. And it's predictable that the special counsel would want to speak to him. We did speak to his chief of staff. We talked to his chief counsel. We talked to his national security advisor. We talked to everyone around him. But the firsthand account of the vice president himself, conversations that he had with the president before January 6th, his lived experience during that day would be directly relevant. Again, they would bear potentially upon the president's state of mind. That's the crucial issue for the special counsel. And the vice president, who had a lot of direct communication with the president, might provide really direct information about that. Separate from him, the Justice Department could actually push through privilege assertions that limited us. There are a lot of witnesses, like some of those vice presidential staffers, who asserted an executive privilege and said, I'll tell you about what happened, but for I can't really talk about direct communications that I witnessed between the president and the vice president. That's protected by privilege. A grand jury investigation arguably overcomes that assertion. That may be litigated quickly. That's another procedural benefit mm -hmm. that the Department of Justice had that we didn't have. So those issues could be resolved and they could get new firsthand accounts that we weren't able to get because of the, just the difference between a congressional process and a criminal justice process. Timothy Hafey, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. And we will be back shortly with a look at a museum exhibit featuring uplifting historical portraits of African Americans. But first, take a moment to hear from your local PBS station. It's a chance to offer your support, which helps keep programs like ours on the air. For those stations staying with us, one key factor for the rise in housing costs in recent years is that building has not kept up with demand. So after decades of fights over affordable housing, suburban counties of Long Island, east of New York City, are pushing for more development. Paul Salman has this Encore report. A 14-acre eyesore in Huntington, Long Island, obtained by a local nonprofit to build housing. Matanical Cork, 146 units of affordable housing. Right, right now it looks like <laughs> scrubland, no? <laughs> yes, right now that's what it is, and it's been like this for 43 years. Pilar Moya Mancera runs Housing Help, the nonprofit which set out to build here when Jimmy Carter was president. Legal opposition and approval delays have blocked it through Reagan, Bush, Clinton, Bush, Obama, Trump, and Biden. Meanwhile, the cost of housing on Long Island has significantly increased year after year after year, even for a young professional, because there's hardly any supply of rental housing. Right over there, you can see the sign that bus drivers are needed. And this is all throughout Long Island, not just here. Though battles over affordable housing are a national commonplace, the counties that make up Long Island have a higher percentage of detached single-family homes than almost any large county in the country. Where did you live? So I lived on the uh, second floor. 
How much did it cost? It was around $3,000 a month. For how big an apartment? For a one-bedroom apartment. For young folks who grew up here and wanted to stay, like 27-year-old Hunter Gross, buying was a pipe dream, renting a nightmare. You go have a good public high school, you go to a good university, you get a good paying job, yet the market rate apartments in the town of Huntington are pricing out young professionals who are making upwards of $100,000. Where has the opposition come from? So I would say a large part of the opposition are uh, the NIMBYs in the town of Huntington and across Long Island. And these are people who don't want affordable housing in their backyard. The NIMBYs, the not in my backyarders, determined to preserve the quiet suburb they moved to and make their resistance heard. It is not just an issue of affordable housing. Even if it was exclusive housing, there are issues of density, traffic, and schools. We have to talk about making it affordable for everybody. When this gets built and there's 146 units, that's great for the 146 people that are going to live there, but what about everybody? Hector Gavia, lifelong local resident and real estate broker. Developers like to build, and if they could put more people in, in the same space, they're gonna, they're gonna wanna do that. And that definitely creates more high density and more people and, uh, you know, it definitely creates more congestion and, and more traffic. But mainly, insists Gavia, it's government subsidies to developers and lower-income residents that taxpayers will ultimately pay for that drive his opposition to projects like Matinecock Court. We don't have an affordability problem. What we really have is a tax problem. And we have some of the highest property taxes on Long Island. So all this is doing is just contributing to that. I'm okay with building any building as long as it doesn't cause taxpayers to suffer more in having to subsidize because we're already suffering enough here by continuing to pay all these taxes. Moya Mancera, though, thinks Long Islanders have long had a problem that precedes taxes. We do have a history of housing segregation, and there was a lot of fear, not only here, but all throughout Long Island. Levittown, a community designed for modern living. It's fear with a history. In the 1940s, farms across the island were being turned into neighborhoods. The iconic community of Levittown was the model single-family homes built as a community the GIs returning from World War II could afford. People of color explicitly kept out. More recently, after a Newsday hidden camera investigation, New York State cited three real estate brokerages for discriminating against home buyers of color. No surprise to Pilar Moya Mancera, who immigrated from Peru and eventually settled on Long Island in 1996. Now I don't have to go from being a helicopter mom to being an airplane grandmother. There is a place for my grandchildren. There is a place for my adult children to move in so they can live in my basement, right? A place for me to live for when I'm a senior citizen. But just as important may be the cost to Long Island's economy. Anne Shabunko Moore employs 82 people making parts for the military on Long Island, says she could hire 10 more, has even lured employees from other states. I paid their rent for a year, and then it was on them to find their own place. And year here on you, you're paying the rent, and then? Went back. It was the sticker shock of the cost of living to buy a house. Because understand, renting, even renting a place here is upwards of 3,500 a month. So the CEO has a message for neighbors bemoaning density and taxes. You all taxpayers are benefiting from my employees working hard. 
right? The number of employees I hire, the number of employees that are getting paychecks, buying food at all these stores, right? I'm your economic impact that's making this region successful. And I'm telling you as a business owner, my people can't afford to buy a house, right? They are going to leave. <laughs> it's hard enough to compete for talent. Now I have to find someone talented and able to afford housing. In fact, she's so desperate, she's looking for help from above. And I'm looking at my roof, right? A 57,000 square foot building, wondering like, obviously there's structural engineering issues and sewer issues. But I'm thinking the footprint of this building, how many apartments can I put up there? Right? Come on, seriously? Come on, right? I'm thinking- Apartments right up there. I could, why not? Can I put a second floor on here where I can put 20 of my employees right on top? Wow. Right? We gotta do something. We gotta find square footage somewhere. For the moment, the weeds still rule. But by early next year, shovels will uproot them and 146 units of affordable housing will rise here. For the PBS NewsHour, Paul Salman on Long Island. On this last day of Black History Month, we feature the stories of black Southerners during Jim Crow as told in a single frame. The NewsHour's digital anchor, Nicole Ellis, visited the University of Virginia to see how historical portraits are helping to redefine a generation in its own voice and through its own lens. It's for our arts and culture series, Canvas. Henry Martin was a deacon and well-known member of the Charlottesville Black community. Henry Martin, born enslaved, working all of his life um, either as an enslaved person or working as a menial laborer, never learned to read and write. But he was able to speak for himself through photography. John Edwin Mason is the curator of an exhibition of portraits like Martin's, now on display at the University of Virginia's Special Collections Library. Martin's larger-than-life portrait is featured along with historical items that contextualize it. He was a man so iconic, a poem was written about him a century later. Someone will pause to whisper, Henry, and for a moment, my name flies free. Martin's self-portrait contradicts and undermines how white students and alumni would portray him. It's a way of saying, this is who I am. This, no trace of his job as a janitor and bell ringer. All the portraits featured in this exhibit were taken at the Holsinger studio several decades after the South lost the Civil War. The people photographed were soldiers, seamstresses, and stable managers. They are really stunning in the way that they show dignity, respectability, style, panache among African Americans who lived in central Virginia in the late 19th century and the early 20th century. That's a time of Jim Crow segregation. That's a time when there were lynchings in this area, and yet you could see none of that. The University of Virginia used at least 4,000 enslaved black people to build and maintain the school in the 19th century. In 2020, the University of Virginia erected this memorial to enslaved laborers to honor the black people enslaved by the school. The Holsinger Studio Portrait Project aims to show a different side of the people enslaved and their descendants. For Henry Martin, those portraits told the story of his life through his eyes a story still being told by those who were connected to him, like Edwina St. Rose. His first 
wife was, um, would have been a great, great aunt of mine. So he's, he's special to me. St. Rose's other family members, a great uncle and her grandfather owned a business in Charlottesville. Their photos are also featured in the exhibit. And they were operating a barbershop that their father, who would have been my great grandfather, established in 1865. People now understand that, you know, there is a segment of the Charlottesville society that needs, needs to have their story uh, told and, that, uh, and celebrated. Nobody in these portraits looks oppressed. Nobody looks bedraggled. Nobody looks beaten down. And that's by design. For Charlottesville, like much of the country, its reckoning with racism is ongoing. There were attempted lynchings in the city as late as 1917. In the 1960s, historic black communities were razed to the ground by the city. In 2017, a white supremacist mob held a violent, deadly rally in Charlottesville in response to a decision to remove a Robert E. Lee statue. You know, the university has not always been a good neighbor to the African-American community. We've learned the hard side of history. We've learned about oppression. We have not learned about black life, Black joy, black family, black churches, black schools, black politics, black style, all of those things have been in the background. And through these portraits, we're bringing them into the foreground. The exhibit also features other examples of black self-expression, like the only known surviving copy of Charlottesville's black newspaper from that time, the Charlottesville Messenger, and juxtaposes them with yearbooks and white media portraying racist stereotypes. I want to tell stories about history through this exhibition. And the portraits said to me, we can explore a side of history through these portraits that has been not completely ignored, but hasn't been given its due. Portraits like that of Henry Martin, a bell ringer, but also a man of dignity and a story to tell, a story that would long survive him. For the PBS NewsHour, I'm Nicole Ellis in Charlottesville, Virginia. And you can see more of the University of Virginia exhibit online and find more of our stories on Black History Month, including one about how students digitizing historically black newspapers are rediscovering forgotten histories about their hometowns. That's at pbs.org newshour. And join us again here tomorrow night when we'll explore the laws state legislatures are passing this year aimed at limiting LGBTQ rights. That is the news hour for tonight. I'm Amna Nawaz. And I'm Jeff Bennett. Thanks for spending part of your evening with us.